It is very encouraging to see some of you back. I know most of, most of us who missed last week, we were out on vacation or Labor Day weekend. It is great to see the gather saints back, gathered to hear God's word, taught, and to hear how God leads us as a congregation. I encourage you to open scripture to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. If you are using one of the Bibles provided in the chair in front of you, you may find this passage on page 1029. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Now this sermon is going to be one of those sermons that I had to split into because of the great amount of, of explanation and uh, the cruciality of where we are in the life of our church. I want to make time, I want to take time to explain clearly this passage. 1 Timothy chapter 3. The word of the Lord says the following to us. Here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach. The husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, but not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. This is the word of the Lord for us and for our hearts and for our church this morning. Let's bow our heads in prayer and ask God to lead us. Father, we do recognize your rulership over us this morning. Father, we acknowledge that Christ is the head over the church. And we acknowledge that Christ is the head of this church, Park Hills Baptist Church. Holy Spirit, we need you at this time to reveal to us what are the characteristics of those among us whom you call to be under shepherds, to care and provide pastoral and shepherding care to your church. Father, we pray that as a congregation we would conform, even in the model of biblical leadership, to the way you reveal it in your word for us. Father, we ask, we depend on you, we ask for your spirit to guide and teach. In the name of Jesus, amen. While last week we began the important talking, addressing the importance of looking closely at what are the biblical instructions for church leadership. Who should lead the church? How should we think about church leadership? Um, I want to remind you, for those of you who are visiting us this morning, we are in Sermon 8 of a series through 1 Timothy, a series entitled, God's House, God's Church. Since the church is God's house, he gets to make the rules. God's house, God's rules. These rules are especially important when we think about the way the church should be led. Who is supposed to lead the church? Well, since last week a number of you were out, I'd like to take a little bit of time to summarize some of the key points we covered last week. 
If you have questions about these, I encourage you to um, get either a CD or on the website we will have the sermon so it will be available for you. Here are some points we covered last week. Scripture attests to the importance that the church should be led by a plurality of spiritual leaders. Now the biblical labels for spiritual leaders, uh, for the spiritual leaders of the church are the following. There are three labels. Pastors or shepherds, overseers or bishops, thirdly, elders. All three labels refer to the same role. And last week we looked at the biblical evidence for this point. Now in Baptist churches, typically, only the senior pastor is considered the official shepherd. Yet, in reality, unofficially, if a church has only one pastor, either the deacon body or a church council has been assisting the pastor in leading the church spiritually and in shepherding the body of the church. God has gifted each local congregation with lay spiritual men who typically are called deacons or who assist the pastor in this role. We need a plurality of men, not only vocational ministers, but lay leaders, lay spiritual leaders who will provide that spiritual leadership and that shepherding care. Now, I will say that I do think that we have gotten the labels wrong in the sense that those who lead the church spiritually and who are perceived as doing shepherding functions should be called by the biblical labels of either pastor, elder, or overseer. Now, if somebody really likes the, the title bishop, we'll be glad to give it out. But these are the roles. These are the labels for those who are affirmed, whether officially or unofficially, as the spiritual leaders of the church. Now, even with the wrong labels, namely that in most Baptist churches, either the, the deacons or the church council really provide that plurality of spiritual leadership to assist the pastor, even though we function with the wrong labels, I do think that we have it right to see it that the church should be led not just by one person, but by a plurality of spiritual leaders, some which might be vocational shepherds, others might be lay shepherds. So I do thank God for the way we have it here at Park Hills, and, and I do thank God for the men whom you as a church have called deacons, they do more than serving roles. They do, in a real sense, shepherding work. I thank God for them. Having a plurality of shepherds, overseers or elders, does not mean, or even if we were to call them deacons, with, again, with, with the wrong labels, but even if we had them, it doesn't mean that they are in control of the congregation. No, Scripture claims that from a human point of view, the congregation as a whole has the final authority over that church. That's what we call congregational church government. It is not the pastor. It is not a group of elders. It is not the bishop. It is not the deacon body or a church council that control the church. They're called to lead, but the final authority is with the body, with the congregation. 
another point we covered last week was that congregationalism should never be confused with pure democracy. The spiritual leaders of the church receive their authority to lead, not from the congregation, even though the congregation affirms them. The authority they have to lead the church is given by God. And their mandate is not to lead based on the majority vote. The spiritual leaders of the church don't lead the church in the, based on, on the majority. They lead the church based on what God says in his word and prays hard that the church is mature enough that the mature majority of the people will follow in that direction. But the authority of the church, the leader, or the leaders, the spiritual leaders, whatever label we have for them, is given from the Lord and is based on his word. So to the degree, to the degree that a leader, spiritual leaders, submit themselves to God's word, the church is called to follow them. If the spiritual leaders do not submit themselves to God's word, the church, you, the congregation, have the responsibility to ask those leaders to correct and to submit to God's word. That's how congregationalism and church leadership functions. Spiritual, the, actually the greatest responsibility of each local church is to identify who are the men whom God has called to provide spiritual leadership in that church. Who are the men who are totally committed to God's word and are more committed to God's word than to the tradition of their denomination. Can I hear a bigger amen in Baptist churches? Amen. We need to select men in, in, that are leading us who are more committed to God's word than to leading us in the things that we have been used to do. Amen. Thank you for that. Yet the greatest challenge for each church is to find those men. How do you know them? How do you identify them? Who should be appointed to lead the church? It is a great risk for a church to appoint among its spiritual leaders men who are just successful in the world's eyes, but who are not mature spiritually, or men who are more controlled by the world's mindset rather than by God's word. It is easy for a church to appoint people who have been successful in their careers, thinking that if they can lead a company to grow, they can lead the church also. Not necessarily. It can happen if those people are also mature spiritually, but not necessarily. God's people are to be led by those who are committed to God's word and his ways. So why is it important for us as a congregation to listen carefully to this particular text that we read last week and we read again today? What do I want to encourage at Park Hills as we're going through these qualifications? So first, I told you last week I have no plans to go anywhere. So don't worry about needing to put together a search committee to look for another pastor. But what if you never plan to be a pastor or a deacon or some sort of recognized church leader? Why should you listen to this text? Well, I'm so glad that you have this question in your mind. Three reasons why you need to listen to this text. First of all, the deacons and I sense from the Lord that it is time in the life of our church to appoint new deacons to step up and serve 
and lead the congregation. Because at Park Hills, the deacons do more than serving, because they assist me in shepherding needs, again, even though labels are wrong, but because they do this and they do this well, the qualifications we should look for are not simply for deacons, but for spiritual overseers. Now, at some point in the future, we may decide to make the biblical distinctions between those who lead spiritually as spiritual overseers and those who engage in leading in service. But until that time, when we talk about deacons, we must realize that they do shepherding role also. So each member of the congregation needs to know how to recognize spiritual maturity in others because each member will be called to affirm the names that will be nominated. So that's one that's one reason. A second reason is I want us to understand that the people who lead the church with labels or without, in official roles or simply unofficially, should be people who first and foremost live out certain qualifications in their lives. We should not give our trust to people who are simply successful. We should not give our trust simply to people who like us or who think like us. We should not give our trust to people who teach what we like them to teach. We want to give our trust to those who are really qualified and living out the biblical qualifications for spiritual leadership. In other words, what qualifies someone to lead spiritually is not his skill set, not his education, not even his experience. Friends, it's not even his seniority in the church. What qualifies someone to lead the congregation is his spiritual character. Now I say this because here's what happens in most churches, ours included. We attach ourselves emotionally to certain people who've been around for a longer time. And for whatever reason, whether or not they meet the qualifications, we do give them deep down our hearts, that kind of trust that should be given only to those who lead spiritually. And it's very easy in churches when, those, when that trust is given to, to different people, especially when it's given to people who are not qualified spiritually, for divisions and factions to show up. And we start taking sides with different people. And we want to be careful that we give our hearts, we give the trust of our hearts to those who are actually qualified spiritually. Third and last reason why you need to listen to this sermon and to this text is because when we know how to recognize spiritual maturity in others, we have a better chance that we will pursue it ourselves. When we recognize spiritual maturity in others, when we know how to recognize it, we actually have a chance to pursue it better ourselves. So this is not just about whether or not you ever plan to think about being a spiritual leader in the church. This is about you growing in the faith also. So let's look at each of the qualifications. What is amazing about this list of qualifications is how unamazing each of these requirements are. Can I say this again? What is so amazing about these qualifications is how unamazing each of them are. All qualifications, with the exception of two, are characteristics which the scriptures encourage 
for all Christians to have. The two exceptions are the ability to teach, and the other one is being a new convert. I mean, everyone will be there, but we hope no one will stay there. It moves on to maturity. But all other characteristics are required of all Christians, above reproach, committed to one's wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, able to manage his family well and have a good reputation with outsiders. Twelve points for the sermon. Twelve characteristics of people who qualify themselves for being spiritual leaders of the church. Now friends, in other words, those men who actually live out what Scripture asks of all of us and who on top of that are able to teach others and are not immature spiritually, those men should be placed in leadership positions in the church. Those men who model what Scripture calls of all of us should be affirmed as spiritual leaders. Notice what is not included in this list. Seminary training. Seminary training. A PhD. I know churches who, who, who are putting in their requirements for have, to have a pastor search, in a pastor search list issues, um, that the, he must have a PhD. It's just not here. Um, here's another one. Uh, he must have experience. Remember Timothy? He was too young. He must be older in age. He must have some administrative skills. He must have some leadership skills. None of these things are in this list. Not because they are not helpful to have, but because they're not as essential as making sure that how one lives is way more important than the skills he has acquired. The spiritual character of a person is way more important than his giftedness. It is oftentimes that, that including Baptist churches, we promote people to leadership who have certain gifts. And again, not that those gifts are not helpful. They're very helpful. But the most important thing is spiritual qualification, spiritual character. Let's look at verse 2. Let's look, go through this, this list of qualifications. And by the way, I need to say the following. On some of these qualifications, especially if you grew up in, 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 a ch in the church, they will not be new to you. But here's where the challenge I find with most of us. It's not that we don't understand what they are. Where we falter is actually in diagnosing if someone actually meets them. How do you know if someone actually has those qualifications? How do you run the tests and make sure that, that it runs well? Well, one way I have provided for you to equip you to work through this is in the bulletin, in your bulletin, in the sermon notes section, I have given you under each qualification a number of questions. Now, I may refer to some of these questions in the sermon, but I, wanna, I want you to think about those questions on your own. And, and as you think about people that qualify for spiritual leadership in the church, work through these questions and see how is this person living it out. Now, none of us are going to be perfect. But I want to equip you with some questions to consider. So let's look through these qualifications. Verse 2. The overseer must be above reproach. 
this qualification is unique from the, all the others because it functions like an umbrella for the rest. It covers all the other ones. And it also cover thing, covers things that are not included. To be above reproach does not mean that we have to be sinless. Otherwise, none of us would make this list. None of us. To be above reproach, instead, it means to be without reasons to be blamed by others. In other words, when you see someone, does he live such a life that if someone were to bring an accusation against him, let's say of any immorality, it would shock you? Or does he live such a life that when someone brings an accusation against him, your answer is, yeah, I'm not surprised. Living above reproach is, is living such a life that when someone brings an accusation against me or you, others would say, wow, that does not sound like the way I know this person. That's what it means to live above reproach. Now, here's some questions to consider. Are there any areas in a person's life where someone might bring up a legitimate and biblical accusation? Uh, would any of his coworkers or family friends or family members be surprised to hear that this person is a leader in the church? There might be things in this person's life that are not even in this list of things, but nevertheless, because there are ways of his lifestyle that actually would surprise for some to hear that he is a church leader, it shows that that person should not be one to be above reproach. Again, all Christians should be above reproach, friends. All Christians should be above reproach. But overseers must be above reproach if they are to serve in that role of overseer. Now, I want to make sure that we understand why this above reproach principle is based on the gospel of grace. If you're not a Christian this morning, I want to make sure you understand that Christian faith, the faith we have, it's not about trying as hard as you can to be moral or to stay moral. It is not even about living out these qualifications in and of themselves. As a matter of fact, there are two ways people can run away from God. The first is by trying to rebel against God, by trying to act against God. The second way people try to run away from God is by trying to be good. By trying to work it up to God and earn God's favor by what they do. That is a second way people run away from God. Friends, the only way we can run to God is that we come to Christ's understanding that there's nothing in us that can please God by ourselves. That unless Christ does a new work of regeneration in us, we cannot be pleasing into God's sight. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a statement that Christ is the only one who has paid the price for us and his perfection has been imputed upon us so that now God considers us perfect not because of what we do, but because of what Christ has done. No man can match God's standards perfectly except Jesus. Friends, when we understand that Christ has paid the price for our sin to rescue us from our sin, yes, we will try to forsake sinfulness, but not in order to please God or to gain God's favor, but in order to show our gratitude for the grace of God in our lives. 
It is a pleasing of God that comes out of gratitude, not out of a desire to buy God's favor. And the way this desire to live above reproach is rooted in the gospel is that when we understand what Jesus has done for us, namely, he came down to destroy the work of the devil in us and the sin that lives in us, if we understand that, and following Jesus means we want to live life without any desire of anyone having more accusations against us. That is a desire of every Christian. A friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, or you think you are, but your life does not show it, I want to make sure you understand the gospel. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that makes us right with God. And only when we have that right, we actually are called to live righteously to reflect what Christ has done for us. If you want to know more about this gospel, I would love to talk to you. Today at the end of the service, or you may talk to any of the members here, speak with someone about what it means to follow Christ and what it means to have God in your life. But for those of us who have professed Christ, a great way to test whether or not the Spirit is in your life is, or to see if the Spirit is winning the battle over your sinful nature, is to ask yourself the following question. Do I desire to live life above reproach? Do I desire to live life above reproach? Do I desire to live life such a way that others cannot find any reason to throw dirt on me or on the cause of Christ or on the church of Jesus Christ? Do I desire to live that kind of life? Or am I always playing life on the fence? There's some people who live their Christian lives on the fence, holding their hands to a rope, and they want to see how much can I bend over into the world side without falling over. And we oftentimes think, well, is that really a sin or not? Come on. Should we be, be legalistic here? Why all these rules about this or that? Friends, if your mind is consumed about how far you can live in the world without being of the world, you may just have the wrong idea about the gospel. You may know it in your mind, but I don't think it has affected your heart. Because when we understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we understand what Jesus did for us, it's like, wow, if this is what Jesus did, I want to I live the rest of my life away from the sin that Jesus came to destroy. I want to live my life above reproach in everything I do. Now, reality is, dear friends, we will never be able to do it at all times. We will always falter. But our desire is to live above reproach. That's why this qualification, this first qualification, is like an umbrella of everything else. And it is the qualification and it is the desire of every one of us here. But those who actually do it qualify for spiritual leadership. Let's go to the next ones. There's a number of other ones. These are, I, in my mind, I think they are spelling out. They're spelling out what this qualification of above reproach means. So they're a, a summary of what that above reproach attitude is. Here's the first one in verse 2. The first specific qualification. The husband of but one wife. That's amazing that this is the first specific qualification in this list of things. 
Now, the Greek text literally means a one-woman man. There are three major interpretations with this qualification. The first view is that this verse is simply speaking against polygamy, against the practice of having multiple wives at the same time. I'm not very convinced that this is what Paul had in mind here. Because I'm, I just don't see in, in the New Testament that polygamy was a big deal that Christians struggled with. It was a pre-black and white issue that was assumed and known, and it was not as big of a concern in the early church. Monogamous marriages for the Christians were clearly a norm. A second view is that this verse requires ministers to be married only once, so that people who are remarried, say because of the spouse has died, would be disqualified. I'm also not convinced that this is what Paul intended here. Paul here is not talking so much about one's marital status, either in claiming that the person must be married or that he could have only one wife in his lifetime. As a matter of fact, Paul does encourage some to get remarried. A third view claims that this verse means the commitment to one woman at a time. In other words, the command limits people who have fallen into adultery or any kinds of unfaithfulness to their spouses. So, and this refers not just about physical unfaithfulness, but emotional unfaithfulness also. So people who are emotionally committed to other women other than their wives. I do believe that, the, that this last, last view, third view, has the strongest interpretation. Paul is talking here not so much about one's marital status, namely that you have to be married, and then only once in your lifetime, but about their absolute commitment to their wives, both physically and emotionally and spiritually. A one-woman man. Now, if this is what Paul had in mind, in the third view, does it mean that a divorced person can be affirmed for spiritual leadership? It is debatable if the expression, a one-woman man, limits someone who is divorced to take on a spiritual leadership role. Some people say, yes, it does limit. Others say, no, it does not. It is hard for me to say which of these is right. But I will say this. I think there is another more undebatable principle in this passage that should give us a great caution in allowing people who have been divorced to lead spiritually. And that is a verse that says he is able, he should be able to manage his own family well. Has this person loved his wife in the way Christ loved the church? Has he been committed to his wife in such a way that he did not allow sinful attitudes and behaviors to develop to the point where the marriage covenant was broken? If he had failed to lead his own family spiritually, how can he be put in a spiritual role in the church? Now I commend our congregation for upholding a high view of marriage, and for affirming in spiritual leadership roles only men who are above reproach, even in this area of commitment to one woman. Now, I also know in our congregation there are men who have gone through the pain of divorce, who have repented of it, and who seek to be faithful in their current marriages. Such men should continue to be faithful in all their dealings, even if they may not be called to an official role of spiritual leadership. 
there are so many other ways in which these, con these men could serve in the church. And we should encourage them, and we should thank God for the blessing they are to us as a congregation. So if this qualification refers primarily to the pure commitment of a man uh, for his wife, how do we know if someone meets this qualification? Here's some question to consider. How would you characterize a man's fellowship with other Christian women? What are a man's entertainment choices? Does he view sexually explicit material or pornography? How does he fight against lust? These questions should be asked and are valid even if someone is, even if someone is unmarried. If he, the man is married, here are some questions to consider. Does the man evidence fidelity to his wife? Is he faithful emotionally and physically to her? With his wife, approve that her husband is committed to her and thus qualify for the role of an overseer. In other words, a one-woman man arranges his interactions with other females in such a way that he does not cause suspicion in his wife's eyes or suspicion in the eyes of others. He lives such a life that it is evident that he is committed only to one woman and no one else both emotionally and sexually. The second specific qualification, actually there's a string of qualifications. In verse 2, temperate, self-controlled, respectable. These three qualifications are considered together because there's great resemblance and interconnectedness between them. Temperate people are free from the excessive influence of passion, lust, emotions, attitude, or outward actions. The temperate man puts limitations on his own freedom, and this leads to someone who is self-controlled. Such a man is not carried away by the influence that may come his way. Such a man typically thinks before he speaks. When a temperate man and a self-control, when, when, when someone is temperate and self-controlled, it leads to respect. This is, by the way, the same word used for modesty for ladies in chapter 2. So here's some questions to ask of someone, of yourself perhaps, or someone else. Is the man a show-off guy, controlled by whatever gets a spotlight on him? Is he a trendy man? Is he a lover of fads, bouncing from one new thing to another? Are the man's appetites balanced? Is there any place where he's given to access? Does food, alcohol, or anger? In Galatians 5, Paul reminds us that the self-control that we're to, supposed to have is one of the fruits of the Spirit. So here, these qualifications are concrete evidences of the Spirit's activity in our lives. Temperate in his thinking, self-controlled in his action, actions, and respectable in his demeanor. Proverbs 16:32 says, Better a patient man than a warrior. A man who controls his temper is better than the one who takes on a city. What a beautiful way to describe what is better in a man's life. Not anger, but self-control. Here Paul says that these qualifications must be present in someone who is affirmed for spiritual leadership. Now let's look at the next one, hospitable, verse 2. It is easy for someone to love to read and study and to prepare for lessons 
or sermons to teach, but not necessarily to enjoy opening their lives to people. This past week, I, I heard about a pastor who loves to teach others, but who locks himself up in his office and in his home and does not interact very much with people. Uh, friends, opening our lives to others, to people, to the people who are called to serve, is a key qualification for ministry. So here are some questions. Does this man open up his own for others? Homes are not the only place to show hospitality. So we could consider also if, if a man is, is he open to meet, meet up with others for lunch and talk about what's happening in their lives spiritually? Is he open to meet up with other people and open up his life to them? That's the idea of hospitality. There are people who love to teach and meet other needs uh, in the church as long as they don't have to spend time with the people of the church. Someone said once, and I'm not sure who put this together, but they, someone said, ministry would be great if it was not for people. Friends, ministry, serving the church, is about serving the people of the church. Now, yes, once in a while there's some administrative things, there's some things that you need to do that don't involve people in a direct way. But my goodness, if, if we're to promote men who are leading the church spiritually, they should be people who are open to engage with people, who are ready and make time in their schedules to open up their lives to people's lives and know what's happening in them. Our next qualification is able to teach. Well, this is one of the qualifications that is not required of deacons. It is in, in, in the sense of those who actually just do deacon work, not spiritual work, not spiritual leading work. Um, it's also one of the qualifications that is not required of members in general. The ability to teach the truth is critical for spiritual leaders because they're called to teach the truth and to defend it. How can you defend the truth if, if you're not able to teach it? Now, this does not mean that a person must be able to preach in the pulpit every Sunday. There are a number of ways in which the teaching gift and the ability to teach can show up in the life of a church. For instance, in Sunday school, in small groups, in one-on-one -on -one discipling. I, as a pastor, I'm always looking for ways to provide men in our church with opportunities to teach in all kinds of settings in order to assess their knowledge of Scripture and their givenness and ability to teach it. So here's some questions to consider. Does a man demonstrate skill in interpreting a text, in communicating biblical ideas clearly, in applying Scripture appropriately to the life of the church, and anticipating objections and pastoral needs in the body? Is a prospective elder committed to the exposition of God's Word, or is he more attracted to teach his own experiences and opinions. Friends, it's not just about having a, an ability to communicate. It's about having also the knowledge to communicate God's word faithfully that is important. Someone may have lots to, lots to say, but don't know how to say it. Others may know how to say it, but have little to say, biblically speaking. Since not all teaching is public, we should look uh, at those smaller, less public areas, we should look at how a man helps others grow in Christ in most, most more private settings, such as hallway conversations and one-on-one -on -one discipleship relationships. Here's another great question to ask if someone is really good and gifted by the Lord to lead and teach others. 
do others come to him for advice or counsel? And is his counsel consistently and thoroughly biblical? Can the prospective elder defend the faith? And here's a big one. Is he himself teachable? Because if he's not teachable, he's not, he's not ready to teach others. Again, the ability to teach is one of the qualifications which a spiritual leader must have on top of the other general qualifications that are required for most of us also. Three more qualifications in verse 3. Not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome. Each of these qualifications talks about lack of control, which was mentioned earlier. Only this time, the, the apostle says, okay, but control in these areas is absolutely crucial. Self-control in all other areas is important, but in these areas is absolutely crucial. Not given to drunkenness. Is the man given to drunkenness? Now, I know some of you ask, does this mean that he should never touch any sip of alcohol? This passage does not say that. This passage does not make total abstinence a requirement for church leadership. It does say that a man should not be given to drunkenness. Can he control it? In the midst of conflict, is he patient and gentle? Or does he get out of control? Beyond avoiding fights, is this man um, a peacemaker, seeking to understand before he seeking to oppose? Or does he, is he the kind of man who always just gets it out without really knowing what it's all about? Or is he known in the community for stirring up a controversy? Self-control in the areas of substances, emotions, and use of our tongue is critical for someone who is called to watch for the spiritual lives of others. How can we watch over the souls of others when he cannot watch over his own soul as he's enslaved to these matters? We're coming close to the end of this list. Not a lover of money. The qualification warns us that our devotion should not be to materialism. Paul will speak in chapter 6 about the danger of loving money. Now this qualification is not ru ruling out people who are rich. It is ruling out people who desire to be rich and who love the idea of being rich. Because it's not that money is a root of all evil, but it's the love of money that is a root of all kinds of evil. Therefore, those who are committed to loving money disqualify themselves. Now, how do you know if someone is committed to loving money? Well, it, it's hard because it's hard to know the motivation of the heart, but here's some things to consider. A person who is not a slave to the love of money will typically give gener generously and sacrificially. He considers his professional and personal decisions not simply based on financial gain, but also based on what would serve God's kingdom better. A person free from the love of money values relationships more than financial returns of those relationships. Okay, so here are some things you could consider. Then we get to uh, verse 4. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. Okay. The family is a key area in which a man qualifies for spiritual leadership. Before being affirmed for spiritual leadership in the church, we need to see if the man practices that leadership at home, thus promoting discipline and respect in his own family. Does he know how to lead his own family? Do his family members respect his leadership? If not, why would the church members respect it? So here's some questions. Is he attentive to his home? Does he provide spiritual leadership there? What does his wife 
say about his involvement? Do the children submit to their fathers? Now we're assuming here children who are still in the home, not children who are away from the home. Um, are they obedient to him? Is it evident that they respect and regard him highly? Or is the relationship characterized by animosity or rebellion? If the children are old enough, would they say that their father qualifies to serve as a spiritual leader? Verse 6, the next qualification, not a recent convert. Again, this is uh, very ambiguous. What does it mean, a recent convert? Does it mean six months? Does it mean six years? Does it mean ten years? Well, we don't know. The point is, don't promote for spiritual leadership roles those who are still babes in Christ. Uh, so here are some questions. When was the man converted? Is he a new Christian? If a man has been converted for some time, does he give evidence of spiritual maturity? Now, friends, I need to tell you this. People say maturity comes with old age. Have you heard that? You have not heard that. Well, here's, some people say maturity comes with old age. But there are times when, when old age comes by itself. And that is true in our spiritual lives. Just because somebody has been a Christian for a long time does not mean that maturity has been growing in that time. So we need to be looking for men who are spiritually mature. A great, a great question to ask is, is the man sensitive to criticism? Does he interpret every disagreement as opposition? Is he able to submit to others even when he holds a different opinion? These are great questions to assess someone's maturity level. Finally, we get to the last qualification, good reputation with outsiders, verse 7. It's not enough that he must have a godly control over his own temper. He must also have a godly leadership in his own family, in dealing with others. But now he must have a good report with outsiders, with those who are outside the faith. And here's a question to consider. Would any one outside the faith who knows this guy, would they be surprised to hear that he's a leader in the church? If his life in society is conducted in such a way that it would be an embarrassment if outsiders found out that he's a church leader, then he should not be affirmed as one. Friends, there are other qualifications in Titus 1. There are other qualifications in the letter of 1 Timothy also, in 2 Timothy. But we have just unpacked what Paul talks about in these seven verses. I hope and pray for us as a congregation that as we think about the process of affirming men who will lead the church spiritually, that we would look at these qualifications. I hope that you would consider these questions that I have given to you in the bulletin and, and think and ponder upon them as you think about different names. How should we select our spiritual leaders? First, we should pray and ask the Lord to help us in identifying who are the spiritual leaders that God is raising up among us. We need God's help in identifying them. And as we select them, we need to trust that it is God who sets certain men aside to lead each of the local churches. Second, please do not think that this process is a reward for those who have worked well. The title of a shepherd or of a deacon functioning as a shepherd is not to be given as a token of appreciation, but it, it is to be given as a sign of trust that through their lives, God is leading our church. Third, Consider if those nominated qualify before they're being appointed. Do not think that by giving someone a title or responsibility, he can grow into it. Finally, 
we should not affirm only those who we like or those who like us, but we should affirm those who live out the Christian profile of maturity. Friends, this is my desire for Park Hills. And I, I want to say this. I said last week, the people a church affirms for its spiritual leaders are a great indicator of the spiritual maturity of that church. So I pray and, and ask the Lord that he would help us see and discern what these qualifications are about and who are the people in our midst who actually live them out, who model it and affirm that in that model and trust ourselves to their leadership. Let's pray.